Hey, welcome to Gig Stories with Music People. I'm Evan Michael at the Spacement Recording Studio in Los Angeles, California. This is episode 28. Joining me today is Jake Kassman, songwriter, pianist, and comedian originally from the Bay Area. Jake studied at the prestigious Berklee College of Music, and since then he's done a wide variety of jobs and gigs in the music industry, performing at dueling piano bars, working as a music director for Second City, for a wedding band, writing for other artists, and music theater productions, and working as a music educator. He founded the rock band Drunken Logic while in Boston, who's having a 10-year anniversary show on April 15th at Hotel Cafe in Los Angeles, and also April 30th in Berkeley at the Back Room. I met Jake on a gig with Sarah Winchester Band back in 2018, shortly after he moved to L.A., and recently had the pleasure of recording some bass for the upcoming Drunken Logic EP out later this year. Very excited for that release. Awesome having him on the pod and hearing his stories. I'm at Evan on the Bass. The studio is at the underscore spacement. The podcast is at Gig Stories with Music People. Share it. Episodes every other Tuesday. Let's get to it. Enjoy. Space is at a premium. Yeah. For sure. At the spacement. At the spacement. <laughs> that's true. I got to find a way to record down here, too. This, yeah, man, that'd be fun. Nice. That'd be great. I yeah. mean, we did that one remote thing. That's true. Uh, my One of many bad <laughs> covers of My Sharona, but oh, My yeah, Corona. Oh, my, yeah, the My Corona thing. Yeah. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's funny. Well, do you want to... Uh, get started here sure i this is this is the the mark Marin tactic where you have the tape rolling already right i, I have I, it I, rolling I was, oh, no, yeah i i know your show <laughs> i know how it works you never know sometimes there's a good little bit that you don't want to miss of course uh early on but uh i feel you no man good to have you good to be here good it's to been, see you i'm trying to remember last i guess the last time i saw you was probably when we we tracked the ep right yeah i think so yeah uh yeah, that was super fun. It was. Really happy to be a part of that. Got to record at really cool studio in L.A. Pa- uh, Palomino Sound. Palomino Sound, thank you. <laughs> Jason Soda. Yes. Super cool guy. Uh, really fun, just like a really fun group yeah. of dudes. We're and featuring Alex Ekoff, a friend yes, of the show. Alumni of the show. Yeah. And uh, remind me the names of, of so the other guys. So it was Donovan and Mark on guitars. Um, and then it was you and, uh, you and Alex on drum, uh, drums and bass respectively. Yeah. And then, Jason engineering and then Nick and I producing and I, I'm on vocals and a little acoustic. Right. That we overdubbed later. And, uh, Iron Fist, I believe is yes. the producer Nick, Nick name. Is, Nick, Nick is, is Iron <laughs> Fist. Yes. Yeah. He also is, uh, puts out music under the name Nicky Manos and I think he's got a new single coming out this week. Oh, cool. Um. Yeah, I guess that'll a, be maybe last week when you hear this. This is true. I forget. <laughs> yeah, I yeah, I forgot that. That's <laughs> all right. I forgot the timing of this Terminator timeline. Yeah. Uh, no, that was really fun. I, I the one thing I remember from that day is uh, the first time we did playback on the tape machine, and just the whir of it starting up. And Alex was oh, like, yeah. "That sound alone made this worth it." <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> and We're, it's true for the for the audio files and the music historians amongst us. Just hearing that and knowing that that was part of that we were, you know, part of that process uh, was really cool. Yeah, recording to tape is 
is definitely like a like a nostalgic thing and like kind of a cool spell like magical process to to be a part of and and it shaped the way that we had to approach it too which was right. which i really liked because i i definitely for for this record in particular i wanted it to feel a little less perfect a little less uh completely quantized and sure. punched in and you know like the little tiny edits you can make whenever you want to on pro tools and that right kind of thing. Yeah. yeah, and it's it, yeah, it definitely changes like the, your approach and kind of the vibe you get. And it was really cool to track like a lot of it live, like yeah. like together, which is is more rare nowadays. Totally. Uh, well, and, and it was for me. So I I connected with Nick and I, Nick Ironfist and I. Uh, we were at Berkeley College of Music together. Okay. And we we actually met doing a, a summer program in New Haven, Connecticut, where we uh, I was teaching rock performance and songwriting, and I think he was teaching DJing or digital music making or something. Okay. Um, and then we just happened to run into each other at the Berkeley Alumni Holiday Party right before the pandemic started. Oh. Um, and uh, like two months into the pandemic, I reached out to him and was like, hey, I'm just sitting on my ass. Um, and I've got these electronically oriented songs that I would never put out or even think to put out otherwise, except for the fact that this remotely is the only way we can make music right now. Okay. And he he is uh, a specialist in like techno, deep house. He, he lived in Berlin and Spain for a little while. Cool. Um, and so I was like, do you want to just screw around and, and see what happens? And then he also has a label that he, he works with called Rabbitat. Right. And that he and his partner Alex do. And um, so we put that together and that was a lot of fun. And I got some friends from like 10, 12 years ago to mail in tracks to be a part of that EP. Okay. Which was really cool. Um, but then I, I swore to myself that the next project was going to be the opposite of that. And I was going to get the band in, in the room together, gotcha. track it all at the same time if we could. And like really just, um, yeah, have that, have the vibe of, of the band recording together again. It's which, like an anti-COVID. Yeah. You know? but yeah. Big, a nice, <laughs> a nice fuck you to, uh, yeah. to the last year and a half. Yeah. Yeah. That was cool. That was a really, really fun, fun experience, and uh, that's going to be out. You said later this year. Yeah, it's called it's called an awful lot of nothing. I'm <laughs> I'm working on. It's got five songs. I'm working on. I think we're looking at two or three music videos for it, cool. and uh, tentatively planned for release in September, October of 2022. And that'll be under Drunken Logic. Yeah. So you get you guys can uh, keep your eyes peeled for that, and I'll I'll try to remember to, or you can hit me up and I'll share it. Oh, I'll, <laughs> I'll be bugging you for yeah. sure. Sweet, yeah, I appreciate that. I need a little <laughs> bugging. Oh, so do I. I mean, the the promotional part of this is definitely the least favorite sure. part of it for me. So I mean, I think that goes without saying for most it does. people. <laughs> I'm I'm trying to like learn TikTok right now. <laughs> Learn TikTok. Because, yeah. That's even just the saying I need to learn TikTok feels like feels like we're old oh, talking. Oh god. <laughs> you have no idea. <laughs> I I mean, because uh, I, I I did a little teaching of middle schoolers earlier this year. I was doing that during the pandemic and before the pandemic too. And god yeah. god, they make me feel old. Just the way they learn sure. music and the way they interact with the digital space makes me feel <laughs> so ancient because 
Well, I think we're probably similar age, I assume. I just turned 32. Okay, so you're a little younger than me. Uh, but, you know, we still didn't grow up with, like, it's just such a vast difference of how kids grow up just oh, immediately totally. integrating with technology. Yeah, well, and I, I don't, you know, like, you, you and, uh, you're from Wisconsin, right? Yeah, Originally. Milwaukee. So, I mean, my record stores are the same ones that were down here because I grew up in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So it, okay. was, it was Amoeba and Rasputin okay. up there, too. And they were in Berkeley and in San Francisco. And, yeah, I used to go in and just raid those those collections. And that right. was how I – I mean, even the idea of listening to an entire album is kind of a foreign concept to these kids. What, what, right. I've, what I've kind of found is that, like, they know a lot of the bands that we knew. But they're right. just going to know the top two or three songs sure. on like whatever's most played on Spotify or right. is coming up. Like you know, so, so they'll know that like ACDC put out a song called "Back in Black." They may not be familiar with the entire album. Yeah, you know that makes sense. I mean, at least at least if they're familiar with yeah <laughs> with the names uh, and like something, I feel like that's that's something. And then you hope that if they like stuff, they'll delve deeper. Yeah, well, and I think you see it too in like the way that because there is such a breadth of music knowledge amongst the generation behind us, yeah, and maybe not as much depth. Um, they're willing to just mash up and and try different genre combinations. Right, that's cool. And so I, I immediately think of that. Uh, excuse me, I immediately think of that the kid the kid Leroy tune stay. Which has been on the charts for a little while, okay. which is really just a, like that could have been a simple plan song, okay. But it's it's in it's produced by a hip hop producer, so it's got kind of a different. But yeah, there's there is this trend right now of like mashing up hip hop and pop punk from like early two thousands. <laughs> that's really interesting, and I'm yeah, I'm I'm not sure how much of it I want to listen to on my own, but it's certainly an interesting. Uh, ear combination to just yeah to just listen to and and experiment with yeah that's cool yeah i mean i'm down for for pushing genres in different directions and you know all that so absolutely so that's cool now you grew up in san francisco or bay area you said yeah and east then, bay okay and then you went uh to the east coast right yeah for for college yeah so tell me about that uh, yeah. Trek. So I started out at the University of Pennsylvania. Okay. Um, and in Philadelphia, and I had a wonderful time for my two years there. I was, I had always been a music guy and had done a program called Bandworks, which is kind of like School of Rock in Oakland. Oh, okay. Um, and I, I had experimented with bands and stuff in high school. And what were you studying? I started out as a political science major. All right. Um, in another life, I could have. I feel like I could have been Josh Lyman on the on the West Wing. I feel like you have the voice for a, like a political commentator <laughs> or something. I don't know if that you've heard yeah, that before. I, I, yeah, voice face for radio. Voice for radio. Voice. <laughs> Definitely a face for radio. Um, yeah. No. I I I I love talking about that stuff. I come from a, a family of attorneys and um, and a very politically involved activist family in that regard too um so yeah i I always thought that that was something i i should study but i didn't think that music was i thought i wasn't i like i'm in a major city like if i want to be in a band i can be in a band and and try and do that 
Um, but then a couple of things happened during my, my two years there, which was that, um, one, I found out that I could take music theory instead of calculus to fulfill a math requirement. Ooh. Yeah. That's I like that. amazing how that, that can change, uh, what you, so I ended up becoming a music major <laughs> okay. because I was like, oh, theory's, you know, easy. I'd, I'd been playing piano since I was five. Oh, wow. And, um, and I'd always... I think more than any other instrument, you can, I mean, if your teacher goes that in that direction, you get taught theory alongside sure. playing that instrument yeah. in, 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 with piano. So I, I had kind of a, a head start in that regard. Sure. Um, so that happened. I had a band at Penn with some really good friends, two of whom appeared on the previous EP. That was where the, the friends I got to, to mail and stuff. But none of them wanted to do this professionally. Gotcha. Um, so we ended up just kind of getting tipsy and playing covers at uh, Spring Fling. That was basically our thing. Yeah. Um, which is blast. We did we did a cover of Baba O'Reilly with a complete with a violin solo. Nice. Which was a lifelong dream come true. <laughs> um, but I I kind of knew I was I was hitting the ceiling of what I could do there. And I'm I'm the kind of person who if I if I've set aside time to do something, I'm going to do it. So like. Yeah. I was I was getting good grades in the poli sci department and all that, but I was writing all of this music in my dorm room and in the meantime, and I felt really kind of lost because I didn't have an outlet for it, and I knew I wanted to pursue this thing. And then um, once it became clear that the band I was in was not really going to progress, yeah, uh, one of my bandmates wrote an editorial about me in the school newspaper over the summer saying like, hey, Jake doesn't really have an opportunity to study popular music and try and get into the industry in this program as it stands. Uh, Penn at the time had a jazz and popular music minor, which must have really pissed off the jazz people. <laughs> <laughs> I can only imagine. Uh, just to throw that that minor in there and and to mash it up with pop. Absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Um, but uh, what is pop jazz? <laughs> Kenny G. Kenny G. Yeah, that's yeah. immediately what I think. Or like the smooth jazz channels that they used to have. Elevator music. Kind the of acid thing. jazz. Yeah. yeah. Um, but so he put that editorial out in the summer edition of the Daily Pennsylvanian, and in that same issue, the head of the music department wrote a response before it had even been published. So this mm. was he found out about this before the editorial came out and wrote this scathing letter to the editor completely slamming my friend. Yeah. And not once addressing the fact that he had uh, a student that did not feel at home in his department. Yeah. Uh. Um, and I think that was kind of the beginning of the end of of me doing because I I was going on these long walks at night and like just dying inside, wondering what I was going to do with his music and my desire to go and, and give this a shot. And right. so, um, you know, I, I kept talking about that with my parents and my parents were, my mom, to her great credit, was eventually like, if if you feel like you got to do this, then audition for, for Berklee College of Music and, and see what happens. Yeah. Um, and so I did. And much to my surprise, I got in. And nice. so I, I ended classes at Penn on May 8th, 2010, and started on May 16th at Berkeley. Just quickly, quickly went to the... <laughs> yeah. Did and not, did you do the whole program? Yeah, I got a degree up there. Uh, took a little more time. I ended up going part-time for my last three semesters because I was working a lot. Yeah. Um, I had a job on campus booking at a 
uh, on-campus venue called The Red Room, which was incredible experience. I got to work with some really, really cool people, and we had some amazing bands come through. Nice. Um, so I did that, and then I also started getting uh, recruited and training uh, at the Howl at the Moon Dueling Piano Bar ah. in November of, of 2012. And that was that was still in, in Boston? That was all still in Boston. And I ended okay. up staying in Boston for another, like, four years after I after I graduated. Okay. Because I, I had work. And work doing the piano stuff. Work the, doing a lot of a different, lot of different things. Um, so yeah, I guys, I, I started out doing the venue booking thing, which was really valuable. And like one one of my bosses was also the manager of Letters to Cleo. Um, but we had like the Lumineers and the Civil Wars and Hozier oh, wow. come through our like 200 person venue. Nice. And then the next time they came to Boston, they were selling out House of Blues. Like it was, it was that kind of vibe yeah. there. It was cool. Um, I got to teach, uh, Ben Howard how baseball worked cause he was British. <laughs> I was, nice. that was fun. Um, and some very, very talented people worked there. One, one of the people I worked with now manages Miley Cyrus. Wow. Um, yeah, so I, I learned a lot about, and and I also got up on stage there. That was they, they the bosses were kind enough to let Drunken Logic do its first show, the tenth anniversary of which is uh, is April. Oh, cool. Yeah, that's that's kind of the the big celebration that I'm I'm planning on social media and a couple of solo shows in in L.A. and, and Berkeley coming up. Oh yeah, yeah. Pump your shows. What, yeah. Uh, what were the shows you're gonna do? So. Uh, I'm doing solo versions of Drunken Logic is an indie rock project that's typically had a five person live lineup, uh, but I'm getting better at guitar and uh, I wrote all most of these songs on piano and I've been working on kind of new arrangements of them solo. So I uh, I'm going to be playing at Hotel Cafe in L.A. on April fifteenth at nine p.m. That's a Friday. Nice. And then I'm going back up to my hometown and playing in Berkeley at the back room on eight, Saturday, April 30th at 8 p.m. Very and nice. Yeah, it's going to be fun. It's going to be my first time doing a legit show in two plus years. Oh, wow. I just played a Hotel Cafe actually on Saturday. Oh, yeah? Uh, main stage or? Main, main stage. Uh, I, I had not played there before. But I'd been there a bunch, so yeah. it was definitely like one of those that was like on my list for, for sure. a while. That I was like, yeah, it'd be cool to play this place sometime. It's it's got a lot of history and yeah, just a cool vibe and really really fun. Honestly, yeah. like just just a really really fun place. Who were to, you? Who were you playing with? Uh, this band, Ghost Writers. Okay, that uh, they were in the studio last year um, recording something and. I guess I mentioned that I was a bass player at some point <laughs> and they just hit me up like like a week and a half ago and we're just like, hey, uh, we need a bass player for this gig. And, uh, oh, that's awesome. Ended up filling in, which was, was super fun. Fun music and good good group. So I played main stage, God, late 2018. Okay, with, yeah. With uh, Christopher Watson, I think, um, who worked at... The mommy and me music class where I met Alex Zekoff. <laughs> oh, nice. Yeah. Yeah. That's funny. Yeah. Speaking of that, I mean, do you want to get into any stories? Uh, oh, boy. I'm, I feel like you have a lot 
for some reason. I feel like <laughs> I feel like well, between all the things that you've done. Yeah, well, that's that's the thing. But we were we've only <laughs> been like moving into um, some of the stuff. I um, God, I'm trying to think. Well, I, I do remember specifically at the Red Room because we we were we were there in my head at least. I forget who there there was some nine big nineties R and B singer who was doing a clinic at 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 Berkeley and they they you know they have artists come through and and do these kinds of things and they have two yeah. main venues actually really three main venues there's the two hundred person red room it's kind of a bigger recital hall that I think can fit like three or four hundred and then there's the Berkeley Performance Center that I think can fit thousand two thousand something like that okay um, and for some reason they put this guy I forget his name um. David McKnight, Brian McKnight, Brian, Brian McKnight. McKnight. It was that Brian McKnight. Familiar. <laughs> um, and uh, they put him in the 200 person room. Okay. And I was manning the door that day as part of my, my venue duties. And uh, it was me and one security guard. And, and because it was a clinic, they had seated. So it was a 200 person uh, capacity room uh, when standing only. But because okay. it was a clinic and not like an actual concert, it was going to be conversation and stuff. They wanted everybody to have chairs. And when there was chairs in that room, capacity was more like 60 or 70. Oh, yeah. Um, well, wasn't he like a heartthrob? Yeah. So it was like thousand screaming girls outside. Yeah, yeah exactly. So <laughs> it, it ended up being me. And the, the security guard was just like, fuck it. I, this is on you, kid. <laughs> and, and it was me and just this this line out the door of like 300 people being literally <laughs> chanting hell no we won't go at different points and demanding to be let into this <laughs> red room <laughs> clinic and uh i had to i had to talk them all down and that's uh that's when i realized i could work in customer service okay <laughs> um yeah so i i remember that pretty vividly wow um yeah and then so then pretty quickly after that i and as I was getting ready to graduate, I started doing two things in Boston. One was working at the Dueling Piano Bar. Gotcha. Um, and uh, for, for anybody who's listening and doesn't know, that's a request-driven show in which there's like two pianos on stage. They face each other. And you're on stage usually a minimum of three hours a night. Sometimes it's you're rotating, but your shifts can be as long as eight hours, depending on where you work. Um, and you take requests from the audience all night. Right. And that, that drives the show, uh, that and their tips. So if somebody right. pays 20 bucks to hear something, you, you tend to play that over, um, other things. And even like stop mid song, right? If somebody like, potentially is, it like, depends on the bar. Enough. So, so Howl at the moon was trying to be half club, half dueling piano bar. Um, which was a combination that increasingly did not work as I worked there. Um, <laughs> And they, they would have quotas on, like, older songs you could play versus newer songs and, oh. and things like that. Yeah, I, I, I was not a fan of corporate management. Maybe I shouldn't be saying that out loud. but Just a little bit too much micromanagement yeah. for something that, like, kind of needs to be free-flowing. Exactly. Well, and, and, like, there was so much, what I learned so much about on that gig, what, what's so cool about that gig is that you have to know a little of everything. Yeah. You know, um, and so like I, I would rap Eminem on top of the bar and but I'd also have to learn whatever the weekend and Bruno Mars had just put out. And yeah, um, uh, one of my favorite memories from that gig 
was a really spontaneous. I wasn't even supposed to be in the room that night because we had two clubs. They opened another one in Foxborough out by where the Patriots play, which is right. like 45 minutes outside of Boston. And that was my usual gig. But we carpooled from there. So I ducked my head in one day and the request came up for foreplay long time. And there were two by Boston, the band Boston. And there were two older guys there who actually knew how to do it and did the organ and drum solo. <laughs> and then the rest, like myself and somebody else, all jumped up and formed an impromptu band when it switched over the long time. And we <laughs> played through the entire thing successfully on the fly. And that's the joy of the gig is that like some of these bands, how, or how at the Moon in particular, has a full band set up behind the piano so that you can do like bohemian rhapsody with a guitar solo and drums uh, and stuff yeah um and the joy is when you get to do something really impromptu and crazy and out there like that like i remember one tuesday night there were two people in the bar and they just wanted to watch the red Sox game <laughs> and i literally went on the microphone I was like so you you guys don't care what we do right and they were like nope i'm like cool so i'm gonna play through all of american idiot just to see if i can remember <laughs> the entire album yeah um and so and i did uh which was wonderful so like that is, yeah that, that that was the joy of it is the when you get something when it's not don't stop believing that somebody's paying 40 bucks to play but you get to play something that's a little off the beaten track and kind of a challenge for you sure um and then the crowd still loves it that's that's the real joy of it the other joy of it um is the bits that you do ah. on stage as well. Because it's almost a stand-up comedy show. Right. And those are like thought out. A lot of them are. And they're all shared between people. And most, okay. so there's there's a lot of different ones. You'll, you'll do like a dirty call down for like the bachelorette and have her dance on stage to Baby Got Back or something like that. Sure. Or sing her a song about how she chose between Tom, Dick, and Harry, but she just loves Dick. And, yeah. you know, that kind of stuff. Gotcha. And very quickly, especially on the independent circuit, some of those jokes are so old, they're just, they just have not progressed into the 21st <laughs> century. Right. I, I've played with people who make Caitlyn Jenner jokes. I've made, you know, play with people who who just do a lot of gender role stereotyping that makes me highly uncomfortable yeah <laughs> um and maybe that's okay at a casino in temecula which is what i was doing a lot of during the pandemic but yeah. um it's it's just not fun and comfortable and, and it means that this guy's been doing this gig for 40 years and hasn't updated his bits in about 20 yeah all you need is somebody to uh know that tiktok and uh you could go viral oh and, totally uh yeah. Well, and that's and that's one of the reasons why Howl at the Moon has cut down on that side of things. Okay. But the other thing that we often do is just change the lyrics to songs to see sure. if people notice. Yeah. So one of my favorites, this this a shout out to uh to Dan Sliker, who's one of the guys who still works at Howl at the Moon Boston and trained me. Uh but every time I do American Pie, I always sing uh now I knew if I had my chance. I could make white people dance and maybe they'd be happy for a while. <laughs> um, that kind of thing. And yeah. then, and a lot of those are just, yeah, there's very much a, a culture of just kind of stealing bits from people because okay. whoever you heard it from probably took it from somebody else at some point too. So stand-up rules do not apply. No, definitely not. <laughs> I, I Mine was, so I lived around the corner from a Wendy's uh, near Berkeley's campus from like my first three years in Boston. And one of the songs I had to learn was Born to Run, 
And the second verse of that song is, Wendy, let me in. I want to be your friend. I want to guard your dreams and visions. And every time I sing that song, I sing, Wendy's let me in. It's only 12 a.m. I want to eat your spicy chicken. I like it. Yeah. <laughs> and and you you just hope the band usually notices and thinks it's funny. And then maybe there's one or two people in the crowd who notice and like, wait, what? What did you just say? And you're just like, yep. yep. Yeah. <laughs> well, you can get away with a lot of that kind of stuff too because like a lot of times it's hard to really pick out exactly what a singer's saying. Totally. Well, through a mic too. And so. the way that Hal Boston specifically worked is that our stage was just in this corner. And I'm pretty sure that half the people in there didn't realize that there was actually a band. Oh, wow. Yeah, because like I'm picturing the only, like the dueling piano bars I've been to, like it's such a centerpiece. Totally. Like every, the they, whole room is built around the pianos. Well, and, and the other thing about playing for Howl of the Moon is that uh, they're a national chain. And so if they need somebody in Charlotte for a weekend, they will fly you and put you up in a hotel just to keep oh, the, wow. the... Yeah, so I, I've done that uh, in multiple places. That's got to feel kind of cool. It definitely does. <laughs> um, and, you, and you learn how different tastes and different songs work in different parts right. of the country, and it's, it's interesting. Um, for instance, in, in the Philly Club, nothing before 1980 worked. Mm. But you know what? People in Boston would like if you played Fortunate Son, people would go nuts. Okay. And, and that's the other thing that the, I feel like the corporate management didn't totally understand was that like we could play the top forty hits all night, but they hear those songs at CVS right multiple times a week. They don't hear Africa complete with a live flute solo <laughs> all the time, right? So like right. that there there is something special about the way the crowd reacts to the songs they love but aren't expecting to hear. Yeah. And it seemed like corporate was trying to cut down on our ability to to play those songs. And just read the crowd kind of like you're talking about too. I mean, when you get a big reaction, every performer kind of knows like you get a a big reaction for something you notice and then it's like, "All right, how do I how do I get that big reaction again? You know, I mean, in, in in that scenario, it's like, oh, well, that genre is working tonight. Yeah. Like, let's pump that a few times, you know? God, I remember the first, so the way, the way that training works is you, you have to learn a hundred songs before you can be, memorize a hundred songs before you can be hired on stage to be a full-time player. And the way they train you is that they'll put you up for like an hour at a time rather than a full shift. But sometimes okay. somebody might call in sick. And if you're a trainee and they just need somebody, they'll be like, well, here, here's your chance. Go do it. And so they called me in on a Thursday night, which is usually a little rough in Boston. It's kind of college night and they okay. never tip. Yeah. Um, not that we got tipped enough anyways. And Well, I, I, it, I figured that was like the main source of income for that gig is tipping. I feel a lot. We got base got pay was okay. With, okay. Um, and the other thing was that it was for guaranteed four gigs a week. Okay. So like that was the most stable job I've had since I, I left college was that's doing good. that. How, how is that on your hands though? I feel like, man, that's a that, lot of playing. It was, I remember I used to have a Fitbit on my wrist yeah, and they thought I I was taking like 30,000 steps a day. <laughs> <laughs> I remember that it was the other thing is that, if you're not used to singing for three or four hours a night, you're going to lose your voice eventually. Oh, yeah. Um, and then kind of like as a muscle, it'll it'll take a few days to recover and then you get through and then you're just kind of okay from here on that. But like right. I, I definitely had that happen to me too. Sure. Um, but anyway, so this was my first ever full, t full shift, Thursday night. 
And I'm supposed to go back on for like my final hour from midnight to one. And the bar is going to close at 145. And sitting up there when I get there is Best of You by Foo Fighters for uh, 20 bucks, which is a bigger size tip at Howl at the Moon. Right. Yeah. So I immediately I'm like, and you know, I, I Foo Fighters were one of my favorite bands from when I was a kid. I'm like, I know that song. I can I can wail my way through that. So I start playing it, and half the audience walks out the door oh. at, while I'm playing it. It's the single worst feeling I have ever had on stage, ever. Yeah. Just like cold sweat. Uh, oh my god. Yeah, and I'm I'm still training, right? right. Like, and I I'm worried. Did I just cost my the my full time players money? Did I just ruin the show? Like, what what did I do? Well, and it, is it a thing where you're looking up chords? Yes, kind so of I, thing. You have an iPad in front of you at this gig, so that you can look up the chords and lyrics to songs. Okay. You actually, and at Howl, you can actually run the lights and do light shows from your. Oh, that's kind of fun. Yeah, there's, and there's a lot of bits you can do with that too. So like you do like walking from Memphis, and whenever you did Reverend Green, you just turn all the lights green. Yeah, that kind of thing. Um, but yeah, so I I am looking at, it, but I do know the song. I'm not yeah. like I, I'm I'm reminding myself of the key and stuff, but like I'm not like hovering over it and not paying attention to the crowd. So I'm watching everybody walk out the door. Oh no, I know. I feel terrible. End of the night comes. We're counting tips. We're hanging around the pianos. And a couple of the players come up to me and they're like, dude, you killed that Foo Fighters song. And I'm like, really? Because I feel like I just killed the show. <laughs> and they were like, no, man, it's uh, 12 a.m. on the Thursday. The T, the subway closes at 1230. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, oh, thank God. Well, and, and that was such a, a valuable lesson to remember that like, oh, right. They all have lives. And Not everything's about you. <laughs> no. Even even if you're on stage, yeah. like, no, you, you can do the best show you have in you, and sometimes they're just not going to be paying attention. And and the other thing I was doing at that time increasingly was uh, was busking. Yeah. Um. So at, at, at Faneuil Hall and Quincy Market, which is this old public market that dates back to, I believe, before the uh, American Revolution, um, they, they have like a, a really established street performance scene there where you have to audition, you have to schedule slots, you have to have insurance. Oh, wow. And there's people who are like juggling knives and chainsaws, and then they also have <laughs> musicians. Um, and so I was doing that increasingly too, both uh, solo and at, with Drunken Logic as a band. The, ju- the juggling chainsaws? Yes, exactly. It's, it's badass. Totally. <laughs> Uh, no, I was not. They teach that at Berkeley. Joking. They do. There's a whole, there's a whole class. Well, they, they make you take other arts while you're at Berkeley. So it's art history and then it's uh, carny work. That's, oh, that's basically that's it. smart. Yeah. Smart. They want you to diversify. Yeah. It's nice. Yeah. yeah. I like it. <laughs> um, but yeah, busking's a whole other can of worms, man. And you I get, bet. you get some weird, weird people. I can imagine. Uh, what? Yeah. Are there are there any more uh, like dueling piano stories or, or busking, or oh. should we move on to L.A.? Oh well, uh, we, we there's still so much more from Boston. Though. All right. I did yeah, seven man. years in Boston. Well, and because uh, um, I'm trying to think of other dueling piano stories. Uh, American Pie again. I will never forget the moment that my boss sang the line. Jack Flash sat on a candlestick. And a divorcee just sat in his lap as he was singing it. That was that was okay. a pretty wonderful night. It said divorcee on her chest. You no, knew. well, you like in in those venues, you're playing to up to eight to ten different bachelorette parties at the same time. This is that's kind of what right. happens there. Yeah. Um. 
I ended up taking my uh, my brother there for his bachelor party as well. Okay. Um, but a lot of times you get just the the older horny women as well, um, and nice. they they love the piano players. <laughs> they love the piano players, yeah. especially my bosses because they were a little more their age. Okay. Um, though me too. For some reason, I I always uh, always got their their shine. I also the thing about that place is that that club was a little off the beaten path for like bar hopping and stuff. Okay. But it was, they had this really, um, great system of, of giving out free parties to people mm. where you could get marked down booze, which I don't even know how they do because there's still like Puritan laws on the books that you can't actually mark down the price of, of, I think maybe it's just hard liquor. Oh, in really? Boston, yeah. So they have they have appy hour instead of happy hour. So you ha- <laughs> half off appetizers. Gotcha. Usually, uh, but they they somehow managed, to, or maybe they just charged really low prices for whatever land shark beer or whatever it was. But basically, everybody I knew in Boston came through that place at some point, okay. including basically everybody I'd ever dated. Nice. And it was usually after I dated them, and then all of a sudden they wanted to like. Oh my God! I know the piano player. You know, right? Um, so, you're the rock star. And so that gig also made me very skeptical of people who want to date musicians. Ah, <laughs> and and that whole world of like, yeah, and, and and knowing pretty quickly that if you meet somebody at that bar, like that's that's not a that's not a relationship that's gonna that's gonna come out of that. That's not even what they want, really. It's like its own universe. Yeah, and like they want. They want you to be the same person off stage that you are on stage. That's an interesting point. Yeah, that I think maybe is is a larger a larger issue too. Definitely with, with I guess performers in general. I'm sure. Know? And yeah, that's a really interesting thing because like sometimes you you talk to musicians. I, I've had friends who like their significant other. Like never even goes to their shows, yeah. You know, like not, and then others were like they're at every single show, right? And I guess it's just whatever works for you. But like you wonder about about that that concept of like if you meet at the show. I I really haven't of all the shows I played. Like I I really haven't met like I haven't like dated very many people that I've met at shows. Yeah. Have you? I tried. You tried. For a while there. <laughs> I mean, and that's one of the differences between pretty much any other city and L.A. too, is that like every night in L.A. is at least a Thursday night somewhere else where you're kind of half out. <laughs> okay. You know what I mean? There's always something to do in L.A. Sure. And there's a lot more people who are on the kind of showbiz schedule where right. they might be working on those kind of nights. Yeah. So there's there I think there's more variability there, but um in Boston that's just not the case. And so when you're like working Thursday, Friday, Saturday, and for a while I was recording an album on Sundays, like if if you gotta make a night out of Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and you're trying to date somebody who's not in oh, yeah. in your field, like that's that's really hard. It's hard to have a social life at all, let alone a, a romantic life. And then that's um a good point. And like I one of the things that's so I still do some dueling pianos here and there. I'm going to do two gigs this weekend. Cool, but it's definitely not something I want to do forever. And one of the reasons why is because basically everybody I know who does dueling is divorced, married to another dueler, or both. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. 
Yeah, wow. And it's, yeah, it's a very insular world that, um, uh, and it, it's amazing how small it is in terms of, like, I came out here and even though I was on the other corner of the country, almost everybody I played with knew somebody I'd played with back east. Um, but it, it, there are people who really dedicate their lives to doing that and i sure. i do not plan on being one of those people as much fun as the gig can be it's just not the thing i want to do forever well and that's a great point right there that i think only comes with experience yeah. and time that there's a lot of like really fun gigs or, or kind of gig ecosystems even if you will uh if that makes any sense yeah but that but but they are like a very specific thing that affect the rest of your life, you know. And it's like, do you do you really like that that lifestyle enough to to stay in it? Because a lot of times it's it's hard to have a like much of a personal life outside of it, kind of thing. Totally with touring and with with different different performing. Well, and, lifestyles. and what ended up. Ending my my full time relationship with Howell was that I wanted to take my band on tour for the second album, and gotcha. they they were not happy about that, and so I was like, uh, "Thanks, but no thanks. I'm I'm leaving in May of 2015." Yeah. Um, and but the other thing is that while you can stay in those ecosystems forever, the other thing is that's amazing is how one gig like that and doing one gig like that can lead to a completely other ecosystem that you didn't imagine there being so like sure being able to take requests and just figure out stuff on the fly that made my busking show much much better than a lot of other people's right yeah. um and then having that kind of repertoire and being um the other thing about because that gig is so improvisatory you 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 anything that can go wrong will go wrong over the course of a set and you just have to be able to to roll with it right um and so that meant that i, I my my next main gigs out after doing dueling for full time was one uh as a leader of a wedding band yeah and then uh a couple years later i started working in uh improv comedy and, right and though the neither of those gigs happened if i hadn't done the dueling stuff beforehand Sure. Yeah. Yeah. You never know what what things will lead to, and like, even if it's like you find a, a lifestyle that is, or just a type of gig that's like not for you, but it it like you said, it led to something else. It it paved the way for something else. So totally. That's super cool. Talk to me more about the anything that can go wrong will go wrong. <laughs> you, you know what I like to hear. Yes, I do. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think. You know, what was nice about um. Howell was the stability of it and yeah. that the, the show was routinized. And so a after I left that to go do wedding band stuff, um, that's when we were only playing like 25 gigs a year. And then I'd fill in the backside with, with uh, dueling gigs around the Northeast. I'd, I'd have to commute down to New Jersey or, or Pennsylvania to do gigs during the winter just to fill out my schedule, which uh, is like driving from LA to San Francisco and playing that night. It's that, it's that kind of commute. Yeah. Right? I did that many times. Um, particularly on wedding gigs, man. Um, I remember one time we played in like a refurbished barn that had been turned into a wedding venue. Okay. And they decided they were going to put the band up on in the loft. 
All right. But the speakers and the singers were going to be down below. Okay. And that meant there was a delay between <laughs> the the wireless through the wireless communications between um, microphones and what we were hearing in our monitors and oh. like what was coming out down below and uh, and we had to try and do Donna Summer's last dance as the last dance of the night with the tempo change and everything and that was about as big a fuck up as I could possibly <laughs> as I remember on a gig it just didn't it was not happening and our singer couldn't hear us well and Oof. it all it all went bad not ideal um I remember another time. We played a really fancy wedding downtown Boston. And as the wedding leader, I, I did a lot of the kind of pre-show work and met with the client. And I was emceeing usually. So I had to like get everybody's names for announcing of the bridal and groom parties. And this particular time, uh, the, the we got like a form before the gig that had all of those that information on it. And I double checked it. And the agency that I was working for didn't realize when they sent me the form that there there were seven names of in each party on the front, and then on the back side there were nine more names. There were sixteen people in each the bridal party, and the, I had to announce thirty two people. Oh wow! Coming into this gig, and they'd sent me less than half of the names in <laughs> advance. <laughs> so we ended up starting that wedding forty five minutes late because I just had to get thirty two people, college friends, drunk and in a line together. Um, and I I personally think that's the the couple's fault because you don't have 32 close friends like that's, yeah, that's insane that's nuts what are you, what are you doing um yeah that's uh, like uh i can't decide so my whole fraternity and sorority are coming to the wedding yeah well and they they i think they met at ohio state and so we had to play the the um fight song okay twice during that wedding and so i i already kind of dislike them because <laughs> i just hate their football team fair um yeah, so so yeah, you know, stuff like that would happen. I I remember one particular gig. I um I played a dueling gig at a casino in Atlantic City. It wasn't dueling. I think it was a solo piano bar gig, but same kind of deal. And at the time, I was on a really terrible diet plan where I was trying to hit like specific macros and like make oatmeal with protein powder and stuff. Okay. And um, that night, people at the bar kept buying me tequila shots. I wake up the next morning. I try and make myself that protein powder <laughs> breakfast, which is just the sweetest, awful texture oatmeal, and then go. Half an hour into my drive, I just have to pull over on the side of the road and puke it all up. Right. Because I'm still hungover. I have to drive up and play a wedding in Maine that night. Um, we get to the wedding in Maine, and... Uh, as I'm sure you've experienced on wedding gigs and stuff, the caterers like to save a little bit of money where they can. Sure. And that's usually by, uh, with the band meals, right? So yeah, I've definitely played multiple gigs where like we get a turkey sandwich and they're getting short ribs or something, uh, right? This caterer just forgot they had to feed us at all. Oh, uh, that's, that's annoying. So our dinner was the ends of the roast beef pieces that everybody else was getting fed in the actual <laughs> wedding in like a vat and then some hastily overcooked rice in another vat. Mm. Um, and, and that was our, our dinner that night. Overcooked um, rice, not, uh, not a no. great... No, oh great, God, uh, we, that was... Uh, the band referred to that as the dog food gig for the, the rest of our, our time together. 
Um, because that was terrible. It ended up being okay. We ended up getting like our biggest tip ever out of that gig. Uh, but nice. um, and but and that wasn't anything we could like. You, you don't ever tell the client about that, right? You don't want to make the wedding about you and your sure. your issues. But um, we end, it ended up being okay. But just that combination of driving from New Jersey to Maine. And having those two terrible meals booked on either side, not feeling uh, great. No, no. And I, I th- that that was probably the beginning of uh, of this new phase of me where I'm trying to not do those gigs as right. often. Um, and there were a lot of fun times playing those gigs. Like I, I, I'll never forget one time. You know, we always had to do shout, of course. Sure. Um, and one time our our lead singer Matt. Uh, you know, starts it off now. Wait a minute, right? And the minute he does that, the entire groom's party just started stretching out their legs. <laughs> <laughs> it's like, oh crap, we got to get low. I got to make sure the hamstrings are oh, loose. Oh yeah, gotta get limber, man. <laughs> I love that. And there was another time <laughs> Matt would also just uh, hand the mic over to somebody when doing the calm response. The right? Yeah. And one time he hands it over to somebody who just happens to be. Very, very drunk. So he goes, eh, and the audience member just goes, ah. <laughs> so people don't know what and to the, do when a mic's, no, mic's put in their have face. No idea. No idea. <laughs> and I, I love that. And he was very, Matt, Matt was, uh, was a cool customer, but um, that's, that's one we'd always chuckle about as a band. Yeah. Sure. That's great. Yeah, yeah. Mic etiquette is definitely something that you would, think it's like a certain amount of just intuitive but not at all for like people that have no experience like it's just so funny when people are like like they're they're holding a, a mic like at their side or something like that it's like yeah that's that's not how a mic works or well right. and, there's, <laughs> and there's something about weddings too where people it's an open bar yeah but also like there's just you know romance and joy in the air if you're doing it right sure you know um so, uh, like, yeah, I, I think people are willing to be a little bit more out there than they would, like, in a in a piano bar, where they're, they're much more self-conscious, I think. That's true. I, I will cut up a rug at, what are, what's the saying? Cut a rug? Yeah. At a, at a wedding, like, way quicker than, like, anywhere else in life. For sure. Because <laughs> like you're, 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 there's people you know and love there. And there's just less, much less sense of, of judgment and uh, oh, consciousness of strangers around. And... I think the love in the air. I think I think That's you nailed too. it on that. Yeah, you know, there's something <laughs> makes me want to dance. I guess it does. Yeah, <laughs> I, I mean, I feel that. I, I, especially having been on the other side of so many weddings now. Yeah, I'm willing to. I, I I'm in a place now where like where I, I, I'd be a great wedding date. There you, you know? go. Yeah, sure. Just because I, yeah, I know. Plant that seed. Yeah, for yeah, exactly. Listeners, hey, mm-hmm, find me, find me on Instagram. You're looking for a wedding date. Yeah, it's, that's <laughs> please, your... <laughs> please, please invite me to your please. weddings. <laughs> yeah, free um, meal, dancing. Uh, yeah, well, that was and well, and sometimes with the wedding, like there were sometimes we play in Maine and we get a full lobster to yeah meal. You know, like those those that's gigs cool. were great too. Um, nice. Yeah, that was fun. I had, I had a nice time doing that for. Four years. Gotcha. And then, so what? What brought you out to LA specifically? Well, I'm from um, Northern California originally. Yeah. So all my my immediate family is all up there still. 
but that's just a hop, skip, and a jump away from here. My grandma lives in L.A. I've got other family nearby. Um, and I'd spent nine years on the East Coast. I didn't want to... Winter's highly overrated. <laughs> sure. Is my, is my idea. I, I'd gotten over it, and I'd also very much um, started bumping up against the ceiling of what I could do in okay. Boston. Um, I knew a lot of very talented people who were teaching during the day and doing weddings at night, and that wasn't all I wanted to do. Yeah. Um, so I, I started planning to move out here in 2016, and then I just per, by chance happened to see a, a job listing for a, an improv comedy club and that needed a music director, and I saw that, and I thought that was kismet, and it turned out to be right. So I stuck around for a year to do that and record one more album. The other thing was that Drunken Logic's... Dr Drunken Logic was a band, but I was the last person in that band to realize it was actually a solo project. Ah. Uh, um, it was your project. It was, it was always yeah. mine. And I, I, I hoped that there would be a, a regular lineup of, of people. And, and we had that for a while, and that was really, really cool. But the really cool people who were in that band, who I'm all still on good terms with, we, we, they had other things they wanted to do. Sure. It wasn't a priority. No, not, for, yeah. not the same priority for everybody. Right. And, and yeah, you know, you, there's resentment in the moment about how that happens, but over time, you can't, you can't hold that against people. Sure. And so, so we're all cool, but um, that was the other thing that was kind of keeping me there, was like, I've got people here I can play a live show with whenever I want to. Right. Um, if that's not keeping me here, then what's, what's doing that? So I, I was planning to leave, stuck around for the improv gig and to record the, the third full-length album, which is called The Loudness Wars, that I'm really, really proud of. Yeah. And um, then moved out here in March of 2018. Oh, and, I didn't realize it was that yeah, recent. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was living with my soon-to-be 99-year-old grandma right by LAX for eight months. Okay. And then, then moved to East Hollywood uh, after that. And I, I you know, I, the first gig I got was at Kidville with Alex Ekoff. Gotcha. Um, and then I was also doing work as a walking tour guide <laughs> to try and pay the bills for All a right. while. Um, and then pretty quickly after that, I got hired as a music director at Second City. And right at the same time that I started taking classes at Second City and improv and stuff, um, I auditioned for, for Sarah's band right. because of Alex. Sure. And then it turned out that the day I, I think I auditioned for her on like a Friday and we found out that uh, the following Monday we were going to be in improv class together. Oh. Yeah. That's crazy. Yeah. Right. Funny yeah. how that works out. Um, yeah. So I, yeah, I guess I didn't realize that you hadn't been in LA that long when, when we met. Cause no, uh, I, I don't remember how many gigs we did together with Sarah, but, uh, a dozen. Well, like? I, I didn't do that many. I guess that's true. So it's probably less than that. I feel like I, I first met you at downtown Disney. Definitely downtown Disney. Um, I only did a few of those before I did three this month. Right. But before the pandemic, I maybe did, oh, okay. did yeah. four of them or something yeah. in the over the course of a year or something. Yeah. So, uh, but yeah, so that's cool. So yeah, you, you I guess you hadn't been in LA very long at that point. No. 
I mean, I'd, I'd known LA a little bit from coming down here as a sure, kid and sure. stuff, but um, and I and I think Sarah will at some point be on the podcast as well. Yeah. We were talking about that, so. <laughs> Sarah Winchester Band. Yes. Um. Oh, yeah, I was going to ask you with like moving to a different city. Like, now I hear like the Berkeley network is pretty strong. So do you get like does that help you get gigs? Do you still have connections through Berkeley? Yeah. Um. I got my first wedding band gig out of that okay when i moved out here yeah um and i'm still i'm on good terms with somebody who uh shout out to donna james who runs the alumni office out here she, nice. she does very good work cool and has people to talk to and so like when i when i thought about going back to grad school there was somebody from berkeley who'd done a master's degree at usc and i you know commiserated with him about why and and how to to do that gotcha um and yeah i still i still see berkeley people Fair enough. You know, I uh, Rabbitat Records is a is a Berkeley project that I'm still uh, collaborating with, and sure. um, uh, Mitch, who's the other guy who uh, plays bass with Drunken Logic occasionally, is a guy I was on the Ultimate Frisbee team with uh, <laughs> back in Boston for, uh, for Berkeley. I I used to play a little bit of Ultimate oh, yeah? too. Yeah, yeah. I just I just saw there was a tournament happening uh, on Saturday at a field. It made me made me yearn for it a little bit. Yeah, miss those days. I miss it. I, it's, it's, I haven't played really much. I don't know if I can run like that anymore. Day. Yeah, that's. <laughs> <laughs> it's I, a lot of running for not much return. Yeah, I mean, there's it, there's some return, but yeah, it, it's definitely a lot of running. I I feel like I used to play a ton of sports. Yeah, and and miss it immensely. But like once I decided like music was going to be my mm. profession. My injury history is so extensive that I was just like, I think I need to like kind of retire <laughs> from like competitive sports. Like, because if you get injured again, then you can't, you know. It could really affect my livelihood. My yeah, my my career. I I should probably learn that lesson. I I still play <laughs> pickup basketball and softball. Yeah. Um, almost pretty much every week. Oh wow. Um, yeah. But my my list like I've I've broken my nose probably playing basketball. Yeah. I've sprained each ankle four times. I had a partial ACL tear a couple years ago. Like I've I've done yeah. high ankle sprains, um, black yeah. eyes. Like I've yeah, sure. I've done it. My my mom definitely thinks I should retire, but I, <laughs> I love it too much. That's the yeah, that's that's the tough thing, man. I yeah, like I'm so jealous when you talk about but uh about playing still and then you mention all the injuries and I'm like <laughs> yeah my list would probably be like triple that oh, at really? this point I I just I play hard I don't mm. I don't know how to like not play Can't hard turn it back. and I don't know I guess I need to drink more calcium or something but <laughs> um yeah I have enough injuries not playing sports yeah <laughs> but uh yeah that's cool man I so other than uh because uh, how long did you play with Sarah? Wasn't that um, long, I guess. yeah, probably probably about a year. Okay. Um, I I yeah I because you got kind of burnt out on. I've been cover gigs, cover gigs right? in general, yeah, and, and that was happening to me even before the pandemic, where I was just like, I I don't want to play. Sure. Not that I was playing "Don't Stop Believing" with Sarah, but like <laughs> that song in particular and others, just like the the can set and, um, yeah, just in general traveling a lot doing the setup and all of that I, yeah. I i wanted to do something a little closer at home and be a little more picky about the 
the projects I was, I was totally. involved with. As much fun as playing with her was. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I, I was I was getting ready to pivot even before the pandemic forced me to to make a move in that regard. Sure. Um, yeah. Now, uh, any more with all the weddings and all the coverage? Like, any more stories come to mind with uh, with that whole? That whole That's life and circuit. Well, you know what we we haven't talked about is uh, is improv. Okay, um, that's a gig. It is a gig. I think <laughs> I think that counts. Yeah. And so for for those who are listening and don't know, I I my gig is to basically be the piano player and underscore improv comedy scenes. Oh, I see. I didn't even realize you were doing piano with that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's how I got started in, okay. in doing that. And um, it's definitely a gig then. <laughs> yeah, definitely. Um, so I'm 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 the Laura Hall from Who's Line is is basically okay. my gig. And um, nice. And sometimes that involves making up spontaneous songs yeah. with people on stage. Okay. Um, and yeah, and that's that's an absolute blast. Um, because they're ne- it's never the, talk about never being the same. Right. Um, and some of those songs can be just the stupidest shit you've ever ever heard like i um my regular gig in la was for a a kids improv show called the really awesome improv show uh but we got hired out to do a a bachelor party okay one night and um we didn't know quite how it was gonna go strippers um well we we were not the strippers thank god and i I, maybe they went to do strippers some point (laughs) <laughs> later i don't know but they, they would you would have charged a little extra for that yeah but so sure. they, they rented out the theater and it was just guys performing for guys and we started with this game called instruction manual in which we have to make up the instructions the players have to make up the instructions for uh how to do a task okay. and so we're like what should what should this instruction manual be for and somebody immediately says sex with the bride and we're like, okay, it's gonna be that kind of night. All right, All right yeah, yeah. Uh, it ended up being really fun, and like the the audience was sharing booze with the you know players on stage. Nice. But at the end, we had a game. I forget what it was called, but we had to improv. We had to improvise a spoof of um, "Sweet Child of Mine," but it was about the Bermuda Triangle. Ah, yeah. It was good. I, I <laughs> it ended up being good. I killed myself a little bit for it because I wanted if I had. Uh, a few weeks later, a few months later, I ended up having to learn how to do like comp "Welcome to the Jungle" uh, yeah. for a dueling piano gig, and it would have been very fun to have made my friend JD go "Welcome to the Triangle." Oh, yeah, you know, yeah, yeah. And I, I wish I'd thought of that, but I'm also <laughs> not sure he would have realized that that's what I was going for because that's the thing about that gig is like you have to be on the same page in that moment, right. and when that happens, it's it's amazing. Um, right. But it's not, uh, it, it doesn't always happen that way. Like, I, I remember, so I got started at this tiny club in, in Boston, and there's this game they often play, or it's kind of like an overlay, where they're doing a scene, and somebody will pause the scene and turn to the audience and say, every time I hit this bell, they have to switch to t- t- talking in gibberish. And then when <laughs> I hit, and, and they have to keep talking in gibberish until I hit the bell again, and then pick right. up in English. Um, and it was getting to be near the end of the intermission of the show, and so I, I, I steered them into a song and myself and Corey, who's one of the funniest people I've ever played with, were on the exact same page. They're like, yeah, we're going to make them sing a song and we're still going to be playing the bell game. So they had to <laughs> make up a song on the spot. But then every time Corey hit the bell, they, that song had to switch into gibberish. Nice. And then they had to switch it back. 
And That's fun. Yeah. No, you get, you get some really funny, silly, silly instances from doing that. Um, That's cool. It's just cool. And I got to write a, a musical for Improv Boston, too. Uh, they do a show every Halloween called Gorefest where the audience comes in wearing ponchos and they get covered in fake blood and guts and stuff over the course of, <laughs> of the show. Um, it's basically an 80 minute long musical episode of South Park. Yeah. And I got to, I got to write some really, really fun stuff for that. That's fun. Yeah. So it's, it's a fun world to be in. A lot of those people are musicians or, or musically right. inclined. Um, and a lot of those people have gone on to help me with music videos I've made since I've been out here in LA. Sure. Uh, two of them are going to direct the the ones I'm working on right now. Um, yeah, it's I I love that gig. It's it's not the the typical gig. Um, and Second City is currently homeless in LA, oh, which is okay. kind of a shame. Yeah, so it still exists, but it doesn't have a, a doesn't space. have a, a brick and mortar space right now. It still okay. has its spaces. They have two locations in Toronto and Chicago. Um, but they, they lost the lease on the, on the LA one and we'll, we'll see if we come back. Okay. Um, but I've still, I do still do some online classes for them. I did a lot of online work for them during the pandemic because, oh, nice. um, well, way that a lot of those theaters keep things afloat is that they do kind of corporate trainings on like huh. how to listen to people and small talk and things like that. Okay. And, uh, we kind of quickly came up with a way to do that over Zoom, and because everybody was working over Zoom, they wanted a way to to spice things up for their yeah. their people. So I, I got more work with Second City doing musical stuff wow. during the pandemic than I ever did in person. That's actually. cool. Yeah, it worked out all right. Yeah, the um, the comedy world. I mean, it's always fascinated me, and I feel like there's a lot of parallels with the music world and the types of people. Uh, and, and yeah, I, I was hoping to ha start to have maybe some comedians on the podcast. Cause I feel like that, that's a gig too. Totally. And to, to get a little bit of insight. So maybe you're kind of like the start, you're, you're the halfway maybe. of a little bit in both worlds. Yeah. Where... Well, and, and, uh, I'm definitely a musician first and foremost. For sure. Yeah. Um, but like that, I started getting on stage because as part of your training as a music director, these theaters usually say that you get to take the classes for free. Okay. That's so cool. I started doing it that way. That's, that's how I ended up being in class with Sarah and, and with a lot of other really talented people. And I ended up yeah. just going through and, and doing the full conservatory program with them. And I, uh, wrote a song on my own for our show that ended up being the closer. And, uh, nice. yeah, it's, it's, it's fun. And it's, um, Again, as somebody who I think has been guilty of perfectionism when it comes to performance and and writing in particular, yeah, there's something really cool about doing improv because you learn to let go of your ideas. Yeah, they they can be disposable. You will have others. Just because that one didn't go exactly the way you wanted to doesn't mean that you're never gonna have anything like that ever again. Yeah. Um, it makes you think a lot differently about collaborating with other people and, and listening to other people. Okay. Um, and it's made me really want to to co-write more um, as somebody who was very possessive about Drunken Logic. Um, and, right. you know, that's that's fine. You, you, I, th I think there's, yeah, everybody should have the right to, to do that with their own their own music and follow their own vision. But sure. I, I also want to to do more of, of the other stuff too and just get in a room and write and see what happens and not worry about whether or not it meets your standards of what great art is. 
and that yeah. kind of thing, you know? And I, I think historically that's something that's really stopped me from doing that sort of stuff. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And, and I've really loved collaborations that I've done and I, I need to put myself in that position more too. Yeah. Because it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a totally different thing than trying to just do everything yourself. <laughs> it is. Well, and the, the other thing that I think I'm really starting to, to notice, uh, especially since the pandemic, is that when I was gigging, doing those cover gigs every Thursday, Friday, or Saturday night, the last thing I wanted to do on my night off was go see somebody else play. Right. Yeah. Right? Like, t- like if I'm burned out, the last thing I want to do is go watch somebody else burn themselves out, you know? Sure. But that also, I think really affected how I, you know, it, it meant that I was asking people to come to shows and not reciprocating. Right. And it meant that um, I wasn't putting myself out there and just seeing what was happening in the scene, quote unquote, right. around me um, and and feeding off of the the other creative energy that's out there. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm making a point in as things are opening up now of being the guys like, no, I, I, we may be Facebook friends and I haven't seen you in two years, but like, Hey, your show came up in my Instagram feed. I was free that night. Somebody else wanted to get a drink. Let's go. Totally. Yeah. I, since I stopped gigging so much, I, I definitely started going to shows again a yeah. lot more and I, and enjoying it. Yeah, exactly. You, know? you can enjoy yourself while you're there instead yeah. of, because when, when you are gigging that much, there is the part of you that's, that, kind of subconsciously thinks you're going to be the one on stage. And so yeah. you're kind of looking around and like, okay, so how much time until and like, <laughs> do we have all the equipment? And yeah, there's I can't a little turn bit that part of that. Me off. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's also, if I, I mean the, the times where, I, where I hardly have any gigs and then I go see a show that's when I'll start to get like, oh, I kind of want to play a show now. Yes. <laughs> well, and that part's always there too. Yeah. For me. Sure. Like, I don't care if it's, like, my, my niece's, four-year-old niece's piano recital. There's part of me that's, like, why? <laughs> why aren't I, I on up, stage right yeah. now? Yeah. <laughs> People should be looking at me. Exactly. <laughs> there's there's part of me. That I, I've, lear- I've learned to deal with it. But, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, was, there was always that part of me that's, like, yeah, it should be me. Apparently you like attention. Uh, a little I, bit. I, I think we all do. <laughs> to a certain extent, we all do if we're yeah. if we're gigging, right? Like, that's... That's part of what comes with it. Well, I'm a bass player, so less less so. I think that's true too. <laughs> I think that's definitely true too. I've I've chosen to put myself front and center a lot. Sure. Yeah. Hey man, whatever works for you, you know. And if, yeah, well, and I and I don't mind taking the back seat too. Somebody's got to do it. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I, I I like being flexible with that yeah. too. And that that and that's the other thing is you know the the question of um. What does this mean for my career? Or like, yeah, is is it worth it if I'm not the one who's you know uh, up front? There, there is a competitive side to me too that that yeah. considers all of that. Um, but yeah. you know, rising tide floats all boats, right? And I I dig that. Yeah, and yeah. so I I definitely try if I can contribute in some way to something somebody else is doing and and help them get there. That's great experience for me. Um, and hopefully, it, you know, it pays off down the line too. But I, I definitely want to be more in that space of of writing and maybe producing a little bit for for other people. Yeah, and the 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 com- the like competitive uh, idea that you, 
I, I'm a competitive person too, and I, I'm getting that sense that you are as well. Hundred percent. And uh, and I think that goes along with the sports thing, and and who knows, just a personality type. But and a little ambition. Yeah. Right. Sure. Yeah. Well, and and some people that like have that I've talked to have brought that up. We're like, oh, well, does being competitive, like, some people see it as a negative thing immediately, which I don't think it has to be. Because it's kind of, it's like, it's like, how do you, are you competitive with other people? Are you competitive with yourself? Are you just because, and just because you're, you feel somewhat competitive with other people, like that doesn't mean you're not ethical about it. And it doesn't mean that you want other people to fail, you know? Right. Oh, I definitely think there's room for everybody. Yeah. But there is that aspect of opening up Instagram <laughs> It, it could just be the likes total on the on the post, or sure. or it could be they got a, a record deal or yeah. something like that, and you're like, why why do they have that and I don't? Sure, right? And I I don't I mean I I try and look at things from like a you should never neg your own emotions. Your yeah. your emotions are real. There is a reason they are there, and it is not irrational or bad for you to feel that way. Okay. It is a question of what you, how you respond to that emotion yeah. that can get you into trouble. And, and a lot of times for me, I've, for the last 10 years in particular, I used to have a sign up over my computer that said, what are you going to do today? Mm. In that like, yeah, you got to do something today that's going to push you a little bit closer to. <laughs> I do stuff whatever. like that too. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I don't think you need to do everything all the time. Right. And, and I need to be better about, like, not letting the fact that somebody else has gotten something that I want dr be the driver and the sole driver of me. Like, you know, I, I, I used to do that, and I'd spend the next day, like, cold emailing 25, you know, record labels or something with my music or something. And, right. like, that's not—who does that help? Right. Yeah, there's definitely, like, different levels that you can take to it and different, like, uh, healthy or unhealthy uh, <laughs> ways of channeling your your competitive spirit. Yeah. Uh, but I, I think it, it can be a really... It can be an asset. Totally. Uh, having a certain amount of feeling like, I want to I wanna be... Be For me, it's like, I want to just feel like I'm progressing. I want to yes. be... I'm kind of competitive with last year yeah I'm competitive with last month i think that's a really good way to look you know? at it uh and, and there's definitely that aspect too of you know pulling up instagram going like oh how did that guy got that gig why did he get that we know all the same people you know mm -hmm. yeah <laughs> or like how are they doing that like yeah yeah there's there's i think a certain curiosity that comes along with the competitiveness sure that can help you sure. if, if you see some hey they did that i i could do that why haven't i done that yeah. Let me let me do some analysis and and figure out how I can get myself closer to whatever that that goal is. You know, um, yeah. That's that's how I started booking tours and gigs for for Drunken Logic. Basically, was just watching how other bands were doing it and sure and figuring that, that and working for a venue, so I knew a little bit of what a venue was looking for, right? Um, which which really helped too. But um, yeah, it just kind of helps the drive and yeah, and all that. Well, and you and you see other bands, you see what their live shows are like, and you're like, I, I don't necessarily want to be that band. Hopefully, you don't want to be exactly right. The, but the how do I measure up to that? How do exactly. I? How do I have just as good or better show? Exactly. Uh, 
So with the touring with with Drunken Logics, any any oh, anecdotes yeah. from from that? Experience? Uh, so we there were two. We we did well. I guess there were three tours that I could talk about. the 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 third one was actually just me, and it was when I moved out here. I I toured across the country and just played solo shows the whole way. Oh wow. Um, which was really fun, except it was a terrible time of year to do it. It was like early December. Okay. So I was going through like Austin and New Orleans and there would just be like no one there. And I was oh. just playing to, I mean, I just was looking for an excuse to go through those cities anyways. Yeah. But I, yeah, I could, I could have planned that better. Um, <laughs> the first show we did, our first tour we did was just down the East coast to New York and then to Philly for, uh, college music journal event that used to be a big deal in new york i don't think it exists anymore Actually, um, i'm not familiar yeah I think, I think it was like like a big convention for college music radio stations and berkeley used to do a showcase there and we got we got chosen for it and so we we played a gig somewhere in connecticut i think the night before we went down to philly or no i think we went to new york first and then we went to philly um we were staying there's five of us staying in one motel room in like a motel six sure and uh we're all we're sharing beds we're sleeping on the floor and in the middle of the night this woman just starts screaming in the door next in the room next door to us lovely i think her his name was she was screaming at her boyfriend and she goes jermaine jermaine she's like out there at the about to lose it and she goes you took my car you took my phone. You took my daughter. And like, and I think the first few times she left out the daughter part. <laughs> I was like, is that is that the order of priority? Right. Young lady? And I think yeah. at some point she came over, or he came over to try and calm her down, and she was just not having it. So we were just, and it was one of those two where you're, you're lying awake listening to it, and like after about half an hour of it, you hear somebody else laugh, and you're like, oh, so we're all awake, and we can just... <laughs> talk about this because you were trying to like go back to sleep or something uh because we didn't want to happening yeah and like not wake up the other bandmates because we're all sleep deprived and, right. and trying to but after a while we all realized oh we're all awake let's just listen to this and and enjoy it for, <laughs> for what it is right um that was that was a shady shady motel i'm um, familiar with shady motels oh yeah yeah oh yeah and i'll um and then the other one i remember uh, we played, we drove out to Iowa City and then circled back to Chicago on the tour in, in 2015. This was the one I left Howl at the Moon to do. And uh, our bassist was from Fort Dodge, Iowa. So we went out to Iowa City and then we were going to circle back. And in Iowa City, we had a little bit of a band fight. We'd been on the road for a week and a half and, yeah. you know, there were some tensions boiling up and I didn't handle myself well. I don't think everybody else handled themselves well. It happens, right? Yeah. But we all drunk, hungover, and we're in the car the next day, and we're just driving through cornfields, going going back home. And um, we're driving past the town. I wish I remembered the name, but there's a uh, points of interest sign outside of the town, right? With local landmarks, that kind of yeah. historical places. Except this points of interest sign has nothing on it. <laughs> points of interest none. and it's just blank it's just blank <laughs> and i've wondered 
and I we had a good long laugh about that in the car. And I wondered <laughs> to this day, like, was that was that sign put up optimistically? <laughs> like, were they were they hopeful that at, at some point yeah. somebody will find something interesting here? Or did they did they have a point of interest and then just decide, nope, that's not interesting enough? We right. we have we have higher standards. It became less interesting. <laughs> uh, if or was it if if you build it, they will the interesting thing will come. Yeah. Uh exactly. Um yeah, I always I and I ended up working that into a into a song on the loudness wars because <laughs> that's just such a vivid description of a small town in one sentence. There's oh, nothing man. on the points of interest sign. I think I remember that line now. Yeah, yeah you probably played that song <laughs> yeah. at some point. Actually, no, we haven't. Well, you haven't gigged. Well, no, but we were gonna do that. Uh, the musical, the musical thing. So I right. I listened to a lot of this stuff for that. That's right. And then yes. that was another kind of COVID casualty. Yes, it was. Thing. We had our. For, I was going to turn the loudness wars into a musical. I may may still. I haven't. I haven't totally given up on the project. But we had the first read through for that the night that the NBA suspended play. I remember that. <laughs> <laughs> and I think we, yeah, we talked about using the spaceman to to record a, a cast recording of that. Right. Um. And uh, yeah. Yeah. That was what I was, I was, I was fundraising and, and like really trying to get that started when just. Yeah. That was one of the casualties. One of many. Hopefully, uh, yeah, hopefully maybe it'll come, come back around someday. Yeah, maybe next year. I think it'll be, it'll be the fifth year anniversary of that record next year. And yeah. and the thing about that album is it, it's a, it's a concept album. It's, it's highly political. It, it's uh, kind of trading off stories between somebody of maybe our generation and our political leanings and then somebody who's of maybe our parents generation and right of a different set of political leanings um and i wrote that entire thing in the summer of 2016 thinking i i wrote it all because it was very much me processing what was happening in the country at the time right but i was so certain that hillary was going to win that nobody would want to hear that record because <laughs> it was like, yeah, everybody's just going to go back to complacency after this. Right. Hillary doesn't win. So I'm like, okay, I uh, guess I'm going to make this record now. Um, And I make that record. And uh, I remember our PR company said when we were pitching that and then the, the video for that song, Alone in America, which is somewhat controversial and not an easy watch, um, that they'd never gotten pushback from press outlets or uncomfortable responses from press outlets the uh, way that they had from that stuff. Interesting. And that made me only want to tickle that that itch a little bit more, right? Because sure. like I, I was getting a reaction. It may not be one that was spreading to ears and stuff the way I was hoping, but it meant I was getting a reaction from what I was trying to say. Right. Um, and so that that evolved into trying to turn it into a musical. Um and I, but then again, I was certain when I was making that we have to do this in 2020 because after uh, 2020, nobody's going to want to listen to this stuff either. <laughs> and at every stage, uh, I've been wrong about how relevant the the divide between the different parts of our country has been, and how much appetite for that there has been and and right. how much that's at the forefront of everybody's minds maybe a little less so now just because we're all watching ukraine right but um and that seems to be the one thing that's brought the two parties together in the last like 16 years but yeah it's hard to say that it's really together true still <laughs> i mean but e e e like relatively compared to the way that i i feel like you know 
congressional bills have been passed and stuff like right. passing aid for Ukraine sure. became this huge bipartisan issue very, very quickly in a way that I was not certain was going to happen, considering sure. we impeached the president for doing the exact opposite thing just three years ago. Um, yeah. But uh, yeah, so like I, I, I think that record talks about a lot of things that are really important and relevant. And so I, I still don't, I don't want to, don't want to just completely depart from it yet. That's fair. Yeah. Yeah. I hope it comes back around. I remember enjoying the read through and. Yes, that's right. You were at the read through. That's to, right. We were, we were the, I was there and that, yeah. That's right. I forgot you were there. It was you, <laughs> me, and then four cast members, I think. Yeah. That sounds right. It. Yeah. Yeah. And we were all like, should, do we shake hands? Do we hug? Like, I don't, I don't know. It, this, this was like March 14th. It that, was. Yeah. We didn't really know. No. Like, well, it wasn't really in America yet that we knew. Well, the like, NBA, the NBA had just. Oh, was sus- it? The, the NBA oh, suspended okay. play. Or it that wasn't night. really like it. It wasn't like widespread like L.A. Like, no, I don't think L.A. Know? really. I mean, in retrospect, I don't know <laughs> what information we had and how much <laughs> right. of it was what, good. What was yeah accurate? Right, but but I remember that, and I also remember going to teach at an after school uh, pop rock ensemble gig that I had. Yeah, and I, uh, that Thursday I was filling in for somebody. And that guy was like, "Yeah, LAUSD is gonna not be in person next oh, week." Wow. Well, it it did happen very quickly, very quickly. So I think it was yeah. the same day that Tom Hanks got it. Okay, and that was those were the two <laughs> things that I remember being like, "Oh, this this is affecting everybody." Yeah, it was like Tom Hanks has it, and now the NBA is just not gonna play games for a little bit. Right. What a crazy time. Oh my god. Yeah. <laughs> well, and I th- I think um because I'm a Warriors fan. I think San Francisco had actually said the Warriors weren't going to be able to have fans. Okay. A few days before. Okay. Something like that. But then the NBA like literally just stopped a game before it started. Like a ref ran out and like waved his hands right. crazily. And like I remember that. And the Rudy Gobert the touching Gobert the microphone. Thing, that <laughs> was the funniest. Like <laughs> what dude, an ass. What a, like that did not age well. No. Like, immediately. Like, in, in fairness to him, he's been very apologetic oh, about yeah. that. And. Yeah, yeah, but it was like, just <laughs> at the time it was still like you're making like, light of this thing. Yeah, it was it was the ultimate like you fucked up, dude. Like, yeah, I don't know. We don't need to talk about that. But. <laughs> well, did did COVID change your priorities? Um, that's a good. I mean, question. you were you were you were kind of a. We used to call my the Alex Trevino, the old bassist in Drunken Logic. We used to call him a bass slut. Because of how often he he played around, <laughs> and I feel like you had a little bit of that going in those I days. W- uh, well, less so right then. Um, I I mean, I started transitioning to like the the studio thing. Um, I guess in twenty nineteen, like early yeah. twenty nineteen. Okay, so it was when the studio opened. So I and and twenty end of like. Or twenty beginning of twenty eighteen is when I went back to school for audio and engineering. So that's when I like officially was like, this is my path that I'm. Gonna... I didn't realize you went back to school. Yeah, I went back to MI. Okay. Uh, or back to school to MI. That was my right. first time in MI. Oh, okay. But it was just a six month, you know, gotcha. program, and I was still kind of gigging when I could during that. Uh, but that was what like my official like okay, gigging is no longer uh a two to four times a week yeah. thing. 
And then, but I still wanted to gig. I still like gigging. So it was like just trying to be more choosy with it and trying to trying to build the audio thing. And uh, I, I guess around tw- end of 2019 thing, that's when I got, I got like a an offer for a major tour, you know, oh. for for China, and I had no like uh, intention of of touring until I got the, that yeah, offer, right? And I was just like, how do I turn this down? Mm. So that's when I did the the China the gig. It ended up being because it was supposed to be two months, and then you only got and, one out of it. Well, yeah, because that's when COVID started. We didn't know until later, but. The, the tour got canceled. We just ended up going for one gig. Oh, and they didn't tell you why? No. The, well, the Chinese government. Right. This was November of 2019. Oh, so wow. We okay, put, yeah. I, we put the pieces together, right. you know, in 2020 that like, oh, yeah, that was COVID related. Clearly, yeah. <laughs> um, so that, but but anyway, I was still getting gigs and stuff, but I was building the studio and and when everything shut down... I kind of like right right now I feel like everything is almost back to to what it was where I'm like I've got studio stuff happening I'm teaching a little bit I've got gigs coming in I've got like I I do an hour or a, a day a week at a guitar repair shop no, okay. shout out nomadic guitar repair and lessons um and I've got like my church gig that I do that I run front they run run sound for, for so it's like kind of all these things i had kind of all that in in 29 in uh, early 2020 where i was like this is cool i've got like five jobs and then everything fell to the wayside for covid other than my studio mm. i had like uh so that was kind of like okay i guess that's the shift for me sorry to for a long answer but no um, how how dare you give long answers <laughs> on your own podcast? Oh man, you well, selfish prick! Well, we could get into a whole thing about how I get um, just feeling weird about talking too much on here, but uh, <laughs> I get that. But but anyway, I, I the plan was kind of more. I'm going to gradually build the home studio while still doing all these other things, right. and then when everything else uh, fell to nothing for for COVID. Um, that's when I was like, okay, studio is now number one priority for sure. Yeah. And that's when I really, so I guess that was the change for me. It was just like, okay, no longer can I afford to like, just build this slowly. Like this is now my number one thing. And that, and so it's, it's been great because I've wanted it. I wanted it to be the number one thing, but I had so much going on, and now it's kind of at, in a good spot. Yeah, where I'm, I'm kind of just choosy with other things and filling the schedule up, and uh, and it's it's going good at the moment. But but yeah, I ideally I I I like the variety. I like having. I like. I don't want to have zero gigs. It feels weird to have zero. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even if it's a couple a month, like it's at least like, for me, some of gigging is like it gets me out. It gets me. I feel like a musician. Right. Well, during COVID, there was those times where it was just like I just don't. Or when things like started to slowly open up, but I didn't have any really gigs yet. It was like I don't feel like a musician. Like I want to 
play again, even if I pl- practice at home, when you practice at home every day, it's still not the same. Totally. As, so I don't know. It's It's been interesting. That was that was a real uh, large reason why I started busking was because yeah. I couldn't just sit on... I I'll know how you... Where did you so you where did you go instead of MI? I always thought you So I went to LA College of Music okay. where where Alex Eckhoff gotcha. went as well. Right, That's right, right. where where me we actually we met after that but we kinda knew of each other there. Okay. Uh it's now called yeah, LA College of Music. It was Llama. So that's where I went when I first came out here. Gotcha. And then went back to MI. Because I I mean, my experience at Berkeley was like I, I very quickly realized in that first week. I don't know if they had like uh, jam sessions for kids to meet up and like orientation week at at Lama. Not like but, set. I mean, okay. people would. They they had a few set ones. Okay. Um, at at Berkeley, and they were they were the musical equivalent of like eight dogs trying to piss on the same fire hydrant, <laughs> right? It's yeah. every because everybody is was a big fish in a small town, right? And uh, and they were all trying to kind of they're all a little competitive and they're all trying to size each other up. And I very quickly realized when I got there, like, oh, okay, so this is the last day I'm going to be the best at anything. Right. You know? Yeah. And that, that was tough. Sure. Um, and so I ended up doing a lot of writing, but not a lot of performing okay. for a long time because I felt like I needed to get better. Right. Um, and it wasn't until I got really, really sick of just playing in practice rooms that I, Decide, you know, like at some point I need to I need to get feedback on what this work that I'm doing and and how I sound. I also need to make a little bit of money. Um, and I started to realize that uh, busking could be my practice time. That's cool. Basically, yeah. Um, and that's what that's what got me out. But yeah, I I agree that like you you I, I'm feeling that too. And like I there hasn't been an actual drunken logic show since. God, I don't even know if we played in 2019. We must have. But I don't remember it. If I did, it was probably solo. So I'm looking forward to getting a a band on stage together for an album yeah. release show, and cool. maybe over the summer too. And um, but yeah, I, I feel that itch, even though I am finishing up grad school at the moment and like yeah. trying to balance that too. But like, because uh, because that ended up being my COVID project. But yeah, yeah. So is is the yeah? I guess what's the goal there now that you 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 went to grad school and like you you said you kind of want to set some more roots and, and yeah. more stability. Uh, do, have you, do you have anything thought out for... Um, I've applied for a few jobs. I'm, I like teaching, and I like yeah. teaching popular music, or at least culturally responsive music. So music that the kids I'm teaching actually like. Yeah. Um, and, and also teaching songwriting and digital music making and empowering kids to make music on their own. That's an, another thing that's really important to me that I think school never really did for me when I was, when I was a kid. So I, yeah. I'm, I'm passionate about that. Um, and I could see myself working in that, you know, close-ish to full time. Cool. Um, I'm also, uh, grad school in, in 2020 and beyond means that you can turn in podcast episodes instead of final essays. Oh, so I've, I've done a little bit of that and I'm actually <laughs> going to be, um, I'm going to be interning for the show switched on pop. Okay, which is a really cool music podcast. Cool. Um, that's gonna be my my summer one of my summer classes, basically. Um, so I could I could see myself working as a as a producer and writer in in that format too. Okay. Um, yeah. So I, I I think um, I'm not overly picky about what 
the job can be. And I, I don't think uh, you can get into this industry and be too picky about job, especially right. if you're looking for stability. Right. Right. Yeah. Um, so I'm, but I'm, I'm very much of the mindset of like, yeah, I need, I need to, I, I think I, I basically haven't, because I was making records or preparing to go on tour or paying people to make those records with me. And, um, I, I haven't taken like a vacation on my own yeah. probably since I graduated. Right. You know, and I, I need to build a life where there's room for that sure. and for uh friendships and dating other people and like <laughs> yeah. that that kind of thing that got really important to me in the last two or three years so yeah um that and then hoping to you know when i when i file my taxes i'd like the number of employers i had to be less than five i think that would that would be nice too that's um, cool yeah, just trying to haggle between W fours, ten ninety nines, self employed every every year is yeah a big pain in the butt. So yeah, works work though. It is, and then, <laughs> and, and I say all this now. Yeah, and then of course some crazy opportunity is going to come through, and like who knows, maybe Second City wants me to play on a cruise ship. So I I don't know <laughs> if I can do cruise ships after these past two years. Just. Yeah, uh, especially at the beginning of the pandemic, that's where oh, yeah. all of the the carnage seemed to be. Um, but like, yeah. who knows? You know, you you don't know what the next opportunity is going to be, and you you think you have your priorities straight, and then you get, um, you know, some some opportunity like the tour in China or your gig in China, and you have to take it because when else are you going to get a chance to do that? Yeah, you just don't know what's going to come down the pipeline, and and sometimes you just kind of have to be open. Uh, open to both saying yes and to saying no. Totally. You know, because I, if something, I, I, I remember a teacher at MI talking to me about that, or just talking to us about about that in general too. Uh, he said he was saying like one of the big turning points for him in his career, from like going from kind of what we've been talking about, like, like just just gigging everywhere but not making a lot of money and just exhausting. He was saying one of the big turning points was when he kind of drew a line in the sand and said, like, okay, this is what I want my life to look like, and if I'm offered gigs that don't lead me to that, I'm going to start saying no. And he said it from that point and from the maybe that day or something, he got offered a gig and said and said no. Mm. And and the 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 guys were like, "What are you talking about? No, you never say no." And he was like, "No, I yeah, that doesn't work for me anymore." And he said it was like such a big, a big turning point in his life, and then became you know super successful, like just all around engineer and producer and all this stuff. And and that was you know there's certain like things that you hear that kind of stick with you. Right. Totally. And and that was definitely one that I was like, yeah, I need to I need to do that a little more. And I've been I got to say, I've been enjoying my gigs this year, like a lot more than a lot of them in the in the past had kind of gotten stale at times and just playing the same circuits and same when there's fewer of them. Yeah. And and when you know the everybody you're going to be playing with yeah you know you know the pay is pretty good yeah you and, know? and the 
yeah, a lot of it's it's kind of all of the above. Like, w- w- yeah. But you're also making a point to say yes to those opportunities rather right. than to every opportunity. Exactly, right? and that that makes a huge, huge difference. Yeah, yeah. I think all of the above. The people, like I've been really enjoying the people I've been playing with recently, and uh, yeah, just it's it's kind of reinvigorated my because there was definitely a time there was like i don't know how much i want to gig anymore because mm. it had really gotten kind of just I, I i was burnt out yeah you know and that was kind of what started the the transition to to more audio and studio stuff and over now over the the past few years i guess pandemic notwithstanding but um especially the past the past year starting to gig more it's like kind of like okay i really do love performing i just need to be choosy yeah need, you know 100 percent. i remember uh ben marino was the drummer on the first drunken logic record and yeah. he's excellent he he was the touring uh the drummer for the national tour of the american idiot musical actually okay um and he said at one point during the sessions for that that the best piece of advice he'd gotten was that is is it good music is it good people is it good pay yeah if two of those three things apply it's probably worth doing yeah and i think perhaps even as we get older we need to be a little more choosy or at least change our definitions of what say good pay is or that that's sort a, of thing yeah that's a good point too. but like but i still do think that those that is the guiding principle is like you know if if the money isn't good but you know what i really like working with those people and i really believe in what they're trying to do yeah then yeah i'll find i'll find a way yeah well that that like trifecta thing or the triangle however you want to describe it it's definitely been brought up like on a quarter of the podcast (laughs) not but you know uh, but but with good reason because it it is a good kind of guiding guiding principle yeah. that I think even even having talked about it a lot like it's a good thing to remind yourself because mm-hmm. it's like easy to to forget about it and then go like oh yeah I need to think about things in those terms again yeah so it's yeah well and then I think the other thing that I've really learned and and starting to steer towards like I I remember one of my bosses at 939 saying like, you don't don't need a manager until you need a manager. Mm. Um, and I'm not sure how much I agree with that now. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. That's interesting. Because I, I mean, I mean, I understand his point that like when you're 21 and you're just trying to get started, yeah, you should be booking yourself so that you know what it takes Yeah, and that you have some experience with that world. But as you get older, um, and you realize that you really don't like <laughs> the booking side of things, yeah. right? Uh, then it means that you're not putting your best foot forward in that yeah. field. And it also means that if you insist on doing everything yourself, you're not opening up opportunities to meet and work with other people Totally. over time. Now, yeah. there's a lot of bad people in those in those books who are just looking to you know quantity over quality don't really um 
you know, uh, have your best interests at and heart. don't really care about your music or anything yeah. like that. Right. Don't know you personally. And, yeah. and you should always be skeptical and, and cautious about that. Yeah. But like if you told me that I was going to be putting out two EPs with with a record label, uh, you know, five years ago, I, I probably would have laughed you out of the room. But you know what? N Nick and Alex do a, a hell of a job and they actually like and listen to the music. And Nick has worked on the music yeah. and knows what he's talking about. And um, when that happens, that, that changes your perspective. And I, I think, yeah, open, it's funny that like drunken logic, the, the core lineup kind of fell apart because in some ways I was not able to do that at the time. Okay. But, um, since then, uh, like the, the loudness wars had 20 different people play on it. Yeah. And just rotated people in, like match match make a bass player with that song because it's a little funkier. And and yeah. I know I know that guy can play that. Um, and so you, but and then that too, at least I think, opened me up to the idea of like, there's lots of different ways people can contribute here, and I should listen to all of them, even if it even it's funny how making Drunken Logic a solo project somehow made me more able to. Uh, delegate to and... delegate and to listen and to let other people shape what was happening in the room that's pretty cool yeah, yeah. it's it's kind of counterintuitive but it's it's definitely the way things played out i like that that's super cool are, are there any more stories from like from from gigs or from sessions or like anything uh now that we're starting to kind of wind down here is, yeah uh i don't know if there's anything we we left out that you want to um I was just telling the story last night, so why not? Um, the second Drunken Logic record is called Long Day's Journey to the Middle, and we recorded it in Saugus, Massachusetts, which is about half an hour outside of Boston. Yeah. Um, and I'm not going to name names for reasons that are soon going to become obvious. Sure. Um, the studio was owned by two guys, and they had a guy working underneath them who was friends with the guy that we were producing with. And he and the underling were the two producers of that second record, not the guys who owned the studio. The guys who owned the studio, I think they might've been there the first day we tracked there. We tracked over four days. Um, but we basically didn't see them. Yeah. About a year after we tracked there, uh, I get sent a news article by our drummer saying that the two guys who own the studio and their, their underling, uh, are being charged for running a federal uh, er, er, drug trafficking ring across state lines <laughs> out of that studio. Ah. I think it was just marijuana, but they were selling it across state lines, which means it's a federal crime. Yikes. And they'd been arraigned in court in Boston. <laughs> and I was like, holy shit. One of the guys who produced our record could go to jail for a long, long time. And that wow. was my first thought. Yeah. And then my second thought was, wait, we brought our own weed every day we track there. Those what the hell? bastards. <laughs> that was selfish pricks. Yeah. Come on, guys. Yeah. Um, that's pretty funny. That is, yeah, that's, that's a good one. Well, that might arose some suspicion if, if they provided weed to all their... Uh, patrons i suppose <laughs> i don't know i feel like that's a common thing i mean you know like jason did not 
smoke during our sessions and I, sure. I appreciate the professionalism there sure. and sure. um i didn't smoke when i was gonna play i might have smoked when i was sitting back and listening a little bit okay but, um <laughs> no when i was singing or anything like that i'm not gonna oh i cannot smoke and sing oh god i no. feel like i have no breath do you 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 i don't think i've ever heard you sing oh well because i'm, I'll I'm give gonna you my I, i'm I'll... gonna need some background vocals for these uh <laughs> You know, these release shows and stuff. Oh. Well, I have a limited range. Gotcha. But um no, maybe I'll give you I'll give you my C D on the way out. Oh yeah. Please I, do. I did front a band for a minute. Oh, okay. Uh Roger This. Shout out. Ah. Um the only time I've ever fronted a band, but and a lot of the cover stuff too, I would uh I would sing like couple songs per set gotcha. kind of stuff too. I just have to find stuff that works within my range. Yeah. And that I can still play bass on with if I'm doing, we're doing covers, but, uh, I sing a bit. It's like my third best instrument. Yeah. <laughs> I hear you. Bass, guitar, and then vocals. So, um, you know, yeah. the other thing that I get a lot of, cause I, I would teach musical improv to, to people as part of my second city duties. Yeah. And a lot of the time that means teaching people to make up songs on the spot for the first time in their lives. Like right? Charlie Kelly. It's always sunny. Yeah, <laughs> basically, yeah. Day man and yeah. yeah well, I yeah. Oh no, so he's just, just a random reference. But I've been listening to their podcast, which is oh. ama- amazing. And he and he's like a really kind of a amazing musician. Yeah. But, but he he apparently like he can't. He never learns covers. He can't learn other people's music. He just makes shit up on it. On, like usually, like just real time or or. Just by himself. There, like, there are some amazing songs in that show that he's... Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of those are, like, totally improv I guess. I'm sure. That makes sense. So, yeah. Um, but, yeah, so, I mean, a lot of it's kind of kind of like that. <laughs> um, but one of the things that always happens, and it's one of the reasons why I feel a little fortunate to have gone back to, to grad school for, for music education is... Excuse me. Um, that... Inevitably, and I'm sure this is the same thing that this happens after every gig you play too. I'm sure, but somebody comes up to you and be like, "Yeah, I used to play that instrument, but I gave it up. I'm just not musical, mm. or I can't sing, yeah, or any of those." Things. And that's just the most heartbreaking thing to hear because I I firmly believe everybody is more musical than they actually think they are. Or could and could at least be if, better yeah, than they it's, are. Yeah, it's it's mostly just training, <laughs> and yeah, and that very few people are actually a musical. Right, I've everybody met some, can though. listen. Oh no, totally. My my mom's <laughs> tone deaf. Don't don't get me wrong, yeah. but like, I think every but and but the other thing that really pisses me off is that there's usually a music teacher in their past. If you dig a little deeper. Mm. who embarrassed them publicly and said you can't do this right or something like that and like yeah. that that bugs me that yeah. really really bugs me um yeah man. i get that cuz yeah like like everybody can get better totally at, at, if nothing else and and if you enjoy it i mean that's yeah uh-huh. well and and everybody that i i there are very few people who don't listen to music right right so there there is absolutely an appreciation Sure. Ability, and that's where it starts, right? You you start by listening, you start by, and then you start digging a little bit deeper as to how those things get made, and then eventually you decide you want to start making those things yourself or replicating those things, yeah, and then making your own. But you need you need training, absolutely. You know? I mean, uh, yeah, a lot of that is just 
if you've just never, you know, those people that have just never had a lesson. Yes. You know, I, I have a cousin who's ry- rhythmically challenged. Yeah. And I would be curious if I could, if I could get through to him with a, with a, with a legit lesson. I don't know. Mm. <laughs> maybe not. But yeah, well, you know, may- maybe he needs a lesson from a drummer. It's like I've, I've yeah. had, I had a, that's true. A guest teaching spot where uh, I was trying to teach a lesson and my, my drummer, Alex McGilvery, uh, got up and did a rhythmic breakdown for a kid that, cause he was a drummer and he'd been teaching and he broke it down in a way that was really helpful that I'd never seen sure. somebody do before. Right. And yeah, it just depends on the, on the, on the specialty. Yeah, for sure. Awesome, man. Anything else you want to uh, you want to shout out or um, or that you wanted to get to on this I'm in your time? To think. <laughs> we covered a lot. Um, oh. what have you been listening to? That's I've been on a huge Counting Crows kick. Really, lately. Interesting. Um, yeah, I think it, it, it's funny because like I, I've always found my music to be hard to classify to people i usually just say indie rock yeah um but there's a lot of folk influence in it and um indie rock can mean anything Um, i feel like the stuff that that i was on has like a punk element definitely well my favorite band growing up was green day yeah and um i mean you got me to play with a pick so i did (laughs) i I was very specific about the bass tone and like which isn't necessarily what my Durant does specifically, but it's definitely in that neighborhood and of the bands that came after. Like it's actually specifically the Bouncing Souls bass tone was the one I was I was really going yeah. for when I when I took you in that direction. But yeah, it was um, fun. Yeah, yeah, it was. But uh, there's something about his Adam Durst's songwriting. Is it Adam? Wait, which Adam, I'm not sure. One I get him <laughs> and the guy from Limp Bizkit mixed up because it's, it's Adam Duritz and it's Adam Fre- Durst? Fred, Fred Fred Durst Fred Durst and Adam Duritz. Okay. I think it is. Okay. Yeah. Um, I don't know. We'll have the fact checker. Yeah. You're going you're, here. Yeah. See, thank God he's in the corner. Uh, Say doing hi to this Tyler over there. Yeah. Thanks. Thank you, Tyler. Appreciate it. Really nice hat you've got on today, Anytime, by the way. Anytime, guys. It's <laughs> <laughs> a really high, um, high squeaky voice. But yeah. No, like that. I, I fall in love with lyrics. And there, there are sometimes, uh, a lot of times, a vocal delivery can really put me off to a band yeah i have never been that big into bob dylan or led zeppelin for that reason okay wow zeppelin yeah i can't i can't do plant man interesting i can't i love his voice and for me just personally counting crows never been never been i felt that way for a long time yeah um but i i kept listening actually bill simmons sports podcaster sure yeah he's a huge Counting Crows fan and okay. kept, and I heard Adam on on his show at one point, and they were talking about. It. I was like, I should I should give this a listen, and like, cool. some really great writing there, and I I really appreciate it. Doesn't always nice. the other thing. I just listened to Leon Russell for the first time. Leon Russell, yeah, I know Leon Bridges. No, he's good too. <laughs> Le- Leon Russell's old school. He's kind of like a Kansas version of Doctor John. Okay. Um, have to check that out. Yeah, uh, the record Carney is is pretty sweet, man. Cool. Kind of. Yeah, it's it's a little bit rock, little Tom Waits, um, jumps jumps all over the place. 
Nice. Yeah. Sweet. Cool. Love having new stuff to check out. So yeah. Appreciate it. Awesome. awesome, man. Well, dude, thank you so much for your time. Thank uh, you for having me. Try this to, has been try fun. To, try to catch your show at Hotel Cafe. Yes, if I please. Can, and, uh, yeah. Hope to play with you again soon. Soon. It'll happen soon. Awesome, man. All right. Thanks, guys. Later. Later.